Welcome to NC Retold. A place where we get to know North Carolina. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Corey George. Today's episode of NC Retold is brought to us by Pilot Surveying and Engineering, providing civil engineering and land surveying services across the Carolinas. Check them out on the web at www.pilotse.com. Joining us today is a local Surrey County native. He's a licensed helicopter and private jet pilot who has flown notable guests such as Coach K and a handful of senators. He frequently flies around the United States as well as the Caribbean and Europe. Listen in as we get a glimpse into the airplane pilot world as we talk about flying, regulations, and how Pilot Mountain played a pivotal role in the development of worldwide aviation. Ladies and gentlemen, accomplished pilot, James Jessup. All right. Well, James, thanks for doing this. Hey, happy to be here. I think this will be uh, very interesting. I don't know a whole lot about aviation, so it's nice to have a pilot in to give their perspective on things and I've got some questions about technology and where we're going in the future and and uh, um, we'll talk about your company and drones and just all things aviation I think it'll be very interesting cool so so where where are you from I uh, grew up right here in Pilot Mountain I uh, grew up on a 100 acre farm on Cook School Road uh, my family raised tobacco we had uh, cattle pigs uh, you know for our own consumption but uh, um, my, my father had a public job as well as uh, running a farm right so uh, uh, some of my best memories are growing up around the tobacco barn grandparents cousins you know when I grew up we harvested our own tobacco we uh, uh, you know we uh, would have some cousins come that we would pay and then I would go help uh, other family members uh, get their crops in but yeah. uh, great great times growing up That's, that was pretty common for this area absolutely i mean in the 70s 80s even early to mid 90s right absolutely yep sure was you still raise any of the livestock for yourself or don't my father passed away in 2013 and uh, we kept the cows we ran the farm uh really as long as we could but um you know with my work schedule i'm gone for days at a time and uh it managing that many cows raising hay everything else you just you got to be there well, it's a full-time job it's a full-time job that's not a part-time job so um several years ago we decided we just had to lease the uh, lease the farm and uh hated to do it but uh it's current situation's working out really well right it seems like there's almost a new movement where people are starting to, to go back towards that raise your own even if it's a small scale for I mean, almost homesteading at this point. Absolutely. You see that everywhere. And it's with the the, the way the world is going, that's not a uh, bad place to be right now. It's yeah. not a bad place to be. Yeah, with all the supply chain disruptions and stuff, it seems like it's advantageous to not only know where your food comes, but have some emergency. You can uh, go out and pluck a kitchen or pluck a chicken or harvest a cow it's uh it's, yeah. it's raise your own raise raise your own garden it's uh that's that's ideal for sure so so how long you've been a pilot for a while now right I, uh wow i started flying the uh summer of 1987 okay so going on 35 36 years now i guess so, what wow what, time flies what prompted your interest in becoming a pilot um, my father was a, an avionics technician for Piedmont Airlines, and so I kind of kind of grew up around it, and uh, it, it's really all that's ever piqued my interest. And um, I was uh, never gifted athletic-wise. Uh, I wasn't the smartest kid in school. I just got by by the skin of my teeth. But uh, when um, I turned 16, uh, Dad said, if you want to give this a try, you can. I said, if your grades suffer at all, you know, you're done. And but really, things started to click. You know, I learned uh, really reading comprehension, learned how to memorize. Uh, I was on my mother's front, my grandmother's front porch, breaking green beans, reading the Jefferson Sanderson private pilot manual, just highlighting text. And uh, that's when things really, really started to click. And uh, so it, it just uh, really worked out well for me. And, and then all of a sudden at school, I started uh, making the honor roll, and that really got people's attention there. Like, what? <laughs> but uh, right. things uh, it, it really turned around. 
And, yeah, I mean, uh, when you when you figure out when you start to get that inkling of what you want to do, it seems to all you, you start to your your attention span starts to heighten a little bit. Exactly. Once the fire's lit, you know what you want. You got a goal. I mean, there's there's not much that'll stop you from from going for it. So I was actually able to obtain my private pilot license my uh, junior year in high school. Wow. Okay. And then and you you were flying in high school too. Oh, or? yep, I did. I started um, I started training this summer between my sophomore and junior year. Wow. So, and then my senior year, I actually worked at the Mount Airy Airport. So okay. I'd go to school, um, get out of school, go straight to the airport, work there pretty much every day of the week. I was there all weekend long. So just um, really immersed myself in it, and uh, and that's that really helped. And that actually really helped with my career further down the road because I just made some really strategic connections that I could go back and uh, basically networking. I was networking at the time and didn't know it. But uh, pretty much every job that I've ever acquired, I attribute to working line line service at uh, either Mount Airy or Greensboro. Okay. And, uh, you know, if you take care of the customer, you know, do a good job, you know, they'll remember you. And then, you know, when the time comes... You know, uh, the, there was an opportunity there for me on, on many occasions. So when you were growing up and your father was an avionics technician, did that get you uh, exclusive seats on airplanes or uh, trips that some people couldn't, not everybody got to go on? Or? It was uh, not so much, but uh, dad was great, you know, with family vacations. Uh, at the time, you know, flying, work, flying, flying with the airlines, working on the airlines was much different in the 70s and 80s than it is today. It was, uh, it was much, I don't want to use the word exclusive, but it was quite different. Now it just feels like you're getting on a bus going somewhere. Uh, during that time frame, if your vacation involved air travel, your time at the airport and on the plane was actually so enjoyable it was part of the vacation. Really? And uh, with Dad's connections, you know, Dad a lot of times would get me in the cockpit. And uh, and uh, Piedmont Airlines was a relatively small company, so uh, so they uh, they they knew Dad, and so uh, it it worked out a lot of times. Uh, we would go to Reno, Nevada. There's a really cool air race that goes on out there every September. So that was a big family event. Okay. One of the coolest things that uh, Dad and I did, he would uh, we would spend day trips. We would uh, drive to Greensboro, hop on a 6 or 7 a.m. flight to Washington, D.C., and would spend the day in Washington. Most of the time would be spent at the uh, National Air and Space Museum. I mean, there's not a, a corner of that museum that uh, doesn't have a memory of my father. And just a lot of great memorabilia there. And... Uh, and so uh, is a, that was very impressionable uh, sure. to me at a young age. You taking your kids there? I haven't yet with uh, with the pandemic. I've got the little guys right now, uh, yeah. uh, uh, four and uh, seven years old, And uh, but I definitely plan on doing that. Yeah, I'm sure that makes travel a little trickier right now. Yeah, I mean, you know, circling back to air travel changing i mean it, it does almost seem like you're getting on a bus now i mean air travel is so convenient and it's so accessible and i'm assuming that it wasn't always that way right no uh you know the uh the price point the price structure it was it's just more accessible than, than it is today and uh, you know the industry has changed in a lot of ways and uh of course prior to 9 11 uh, you know 70s 80s you could Anybody could walk into the airport. It's almost unthinkable now, but back in the day, you could walk in, um, go through minimal security, and you could go right down to the gate, watch your friend get on the airplane, fly away, and leave. And, you know, it's almost unheard of now. Of course, we'll never be able to do that again. Right. Um, but, um, and with the economic changes and everything, the airlines want to get as many people in as many seats as possible. So. Sure. Uh, they've trimmed flights and they put as many seats on the airplanes now. So it's just. Oh, they've gotten tighter. There's no doubt about that. Either I've gotten bigger or the seat's gotten smaller. You know, there's social distancing (laughs) signs everywhere in the airport and except in the airplane and they're, you're packed in there like sardines. Right. So. Yeah. I I mean, it just seems like, I mean, now it's just, if you want to go somewhere, a couple hundred bucks, get you a flight wherever you want to go nonstop. I mean, flights all over the world. It seems like we're so much more interconnected now even nationally but internationally and you do a lot of your flying internationally right yes so so, uh i mean what kind of uh i mean it sounds like you've probably flown a lot of different aircraft what do you what do you typically fly right now well right now i'm certified on a falcon 900 um that's a uh, um, a large business jet it's got three engines it's made by the french um it's uh 
pretty common aircraft in the uh, business aviation industry, and I've been uh, flying this platform for almost 20 years now. Uh, okay. My previous employer uh, operated these aircraft, so I've been I've been on this machine for quite a while. It's a how many seats? Great airplane. It depends on how it's configured. The current right. one I'm flying has 14 seats, okay. uh, anywhere from 10 to, to 14 seats. The uh, uh, I believe the Swiss Air Force has them configured to even carry more. Mm. Uh, particular airplane I fly, there's two bathrooms, there's a, a divan, there's a sleeping area, there's a, it's it's kind of compartmentalized, so it's really comfortable for the passengers. Okay. And that, I mean, that's, uh, I mean, how far would those typically fly? Is that, I mean, that's still international type Oh, absolutely. Airplane. Yep. Our airplane will go 4,500 nautical miles. So that's typically, we can launch from Charlotte, we could go nonstop to London, to Paris, um, uh, West Coast, uh, easily, um, we can do Hawaii from California. Mm-hmm. Um, westbound coming back from Europe, it's kind of iffy. Sometimes we can go nonstop uh, from London, Paris to Charlotte. Depending upon winds and temperature uh, this week, um, just the, uh, there was a combination of strong headwinds and warm temperatures. So we can't get the altitude. The higher you go in altitude, the, the lower your fuel burn can get. Mm. So uh, coming back this week, the conditions weren't as favorable, so we stopped in Bangor, Maine to, uh, okay. to make it back to Charlotte. How long is that flight? But, uh, oh, goodness. Uh, eastbound Charlotte-Paris was uh, like seven and a half hours, okay. 7.45. Coming back, uh, eight and a half hours. What, what are you doing up there? I mean... That on that particular leg, you're very busy. Okay. Uh, you're in some of the busiest airspace in the world oh, okay. in the North Atlantic tracks. Uh, you're in some of the busiest airspace in the world that's not radar controlled. So there's a new technology that's really uh, come on in the last few years. So you're interacting with ATC. Uh, there's a lot of tasks that you're looking at. Uh, you're planning for contingencies. I mean, you've got uh, four hours of ocean all around you. Oh, yeah. You know, if you were to have an engine failure, have a medical emergency, uh, lose pressurization, um, you, you've got contingency plans that you're looking at, and those contingency plans change based on your location okay. on the ocean. You may be turning back to St. John's. You may be diverting to Keflavik. And if you St. Get, John's, like uh, Virgin Islands? Uh, St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland, uh, yep, okay, yeah, okay. On the eastern shore of uh, Canada. Bermuda, is that, I mean... Uh, Bermuda's too far south to be oh. a, a tertiary <clears throat> airport in the tracks up there. So usually you're looking at, if, if uh, let's say you're eastbound to uh, going into Europe, um, usually your airports, your contingency airports are either St. John's. Uh, then as you get further east, you're looking at the Reykjavik or Keflavik. And then once you press on and you're two or three hours, uh, you're still over the ocean, but you're two or three hours uh, out of London or Paris. Uh, if the weather's good, you can look at Dublin or Shannon. Okay. So uh, you're, you're actually quite busy, it, it, and okay. it's amazing to me how you know time's a funny thing to me time really compresses and on a flight like that that maybe seven or eight hours it goes by so quickly and then once you get to your final destination passengers exit the plane they get on there you know go about their way to conduct their business you know time slows down again and it's exhausting so it's it, it's funny the your perception of time when you're really task oriented is is uh, is quite different so you mentioned radar-controlled airspace versus non-radar-controlled airspace. Is there, I mean, essentially like dedicated interstate lanes or international lanes where most of your air travel is supposed to take place in? Oh, very much so. Yeah, okay. very much so. You can just even here in Pilot Mountain, you can look up. There's a major uh, airway. It was, uh, it's been J-14 forever. Uh, but there there are established routes. You can just look up any day and follow the contrails. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's highways in the sky. Um, going to Europe, there's tracks that you follow going over there. And those tracks change every day. Um, based on the the position of a low pressure there's a bermuda low that's always moving up so eastbound uh you're going to be on the uh the side of the low that'll give you the tailwind and coming back you're going to be on the northern side of it you'll get a tailwind that way so those tracks change okay. every day very interesting so uh, you can there's a lot of cool apps you can download uh, there's for a flight there's a uh, all kinds of flight tracking apps that are free you can download and it's actually fascinating to to watch you can see real-time position of uh aircraft and i encourage your listeners to to look at that and then look at the north atlantic and you can you can see the the transition the flow over typically in the uh in the evenings uh you've got all the uh, uh 
eastbound departures from the U.S. that are flying over to Europe to getting there in the morning. And then you got the morning push uh, from Europe getting back to the United States during the day. So it's just uh, it's just uh, like a big anthill flowing back and forth. Well, that's crazy to think about. There's so much going on like that. And so what's the advantage of non-radar controlled airspace? Um, I wouldn't say there's an advantage. I mean, it just is what it is. Um, you that's know, a if you were the to, route you select or you can fly any fly over there pretty much any way you want or? no you know absolutely not once you uh before you leave you get what's called an oceanic clearance uh there's a the domestic part of your flight plan would be from uh let's say from charlotte to uh the eastern shore of canada um about 45 minutes prior to what we call coast out we would obtain an oceanic clearance and the oceanic clearance uh, the north atlantic is divided into two sectors on the west side is uh, Gander, and that's it's uh, controlled at Gander, Newfoundland. Once you cross 30 degrees west, you're talking to uh, the control sector called Shanwick, and that's actually, there's no such place as Shanwick. It's a combination of Shannon and uh, uh, Presswick, I believe it is. Um, but before you coast out, they you get your routing. You get there's three components of your oceanic clearance. There's the route, which basically is a string of latitude and longitude coordinates that would comprise the track of that day. Mm-hmm. So your clearance com- is composed of three components: route, altitude, and speed. And that's what they use to maintain separation. So this your speed is precisely controlled altitude and route. And uh, there's you, well, that's because you, you don't want a traffic jam at the airport, right? Yeah, exactly. Yep. Gotcha. And there's maintain, and a lot of times there'll be an airplane in front of you, there'll be an airplane behind you, and uh, and so and, and you're coordinating, and you're talking to these airplanes off frequency um, as well. So, uh, how far back do you have to stay? Is there is there a certain distance? I mean, five miles. Five miles. Yep. Five. Uh, five and I guess that's miles lateral spacing. Five miles uh, lateral, and a thousand feet vertical. And that's I guess that alleviates any kind of interruption from engine well it's funny you ask there is the pilots themselves we can we can communicate let's say that i am eastbound at one altitude and let's say a uh, lufthansa cargo 747 which is a uh, very fast very heavy airplane they're passing overhead me i would be concerned about the weight turbulence from this airplane that it could totally destroy our airplane it could upset it we could i mean there there have been some significant accidents because of wake turbulence upsets so what we would do we would coordinate with that airplane where we would offset and that would also be based on the winds aloft and so you're we're kind of thinking about the wake that other airplanes putting out so uh, I may ask him to step to the right or if the winds are coming off let's say our right hand side you know I'll step uh, and we're we're allowed to deviate up to two nautical miles to the right of course so we'll work out a way to avoid each other's wake turbulence okay and a nautical mile is a minute or a second of one, latitude? Yeah, one nautical mile is, uh, I think it's 60 degrees. Uh, it's basically, as you look at the, as you look at the map, um, one degree is 60 nautical miles, I believe. I'll have to go back and look at that. But uh, okay. but in aviation, that's... Uh, so that's a minute of latitude. Or exactly, of, it yeah, is, okay. yep, exactly. And it uh, equates to... Uh, 1.15 statute miles, which is what we're accustomed right. to using on the ground here. Okay, interesting. How, how much of your flying is automated? I mean, I've heard things being automated or automated landing stuff, but this is just hearsay. I mean, how much yeah. of that is true? So um, automation is an extremely important tool in aviation. Uh, above 29,000 feet, all airplanes are on autopilot. That's That's the law. Um, a few years ago, uh, an altitude change was, was implemented called RVSM, Reduced Vertical Separation Minimums. Uh, for most of my career, the vertical separation was 2,000 feet. Um, probably about 10 years ago, that was reduced to 1,000 feet. The avionics on the airplane had to go through more stringent certification, so the altitude keeping uh, uh, system of the autopilot, the altitude sensing of the all the sensors, it uses barometric pressure to sense altitude at those altitudes. Um, but one of the uh, uh, provision, one of the requirements of operating in RVSM airspace is an operating autopilot because it just can operate with much more precision than a human can in over long periods of time because you're, I mean, fatigue sets in after a very long period of time. Sure. So up above 29,000 feet, um, autopilots are always on. Autopilots are a great tool. It's not that you're turning it on and then you're just not paying attention. You still have to manipulate the aircraft. 
you're instead of manipulating it with the controls, you're you operate you're using the mode control panel. You're using whatever lateral mode the airplane is in. You're manipulating the the route in the flight management system, or you're basically telling the airplane to fly a heading. And you have to airplane. You have to manipulate the airplane in uh, not only in the horizontal but in the vertical mode. So there's there's different vertical modes to control uh, altitude. So your um, altitude hold, obviously you're holding that altitude, but then there's a vertical speed. You can have the aircraft to maintain a certain feet per minute, uh, 1,000, 2,000 feet per minute climb or descent, or you mm -hmm. can, uh, in our particular airplane, you can ask it to, to fly at a certain airspeed as well. So um, just because the autopilot's on doesn't mean you're not flying. You're, you're still heavily involved in the sure. aircraft. And uh, if there was some sort of uh, altitude deviation or if the airplane was where it wasn't supposed to be, I mean, you can't go to the FAA and say, well, the autopilot was on, it was flying. So you're, you're still the pilot in command. So right. if there's a violation, it's still coming to you. Sure. So what about, I mean, landing, is landing all manual? Landing, uh, it depends. There are certain operations. Uh, mostly the airlines use this. Uh, when I was at U.S. Air, I, was, I flew uh, Like commercial several, flights, like... Yeah, exactly. I would take on vacation. So if the visibility is uh, less than a half a mile, you would use what's called a Cat 3 Autoland. So um, a Category 3 Autoland, you bring both channels of the autopilot on at the same time. It's something that's briefed. It's something that's practiced. And it's absolutely amazing. You just sit back and watch the tech. The autothrottles are manually flying the speed. The airplane is uh, set to hold the localizer which is the lateral portion that keeps you laterally lined up with the runway. It'll capture and follow the glide slope, which will vertically bring you down to the touchdown zone. And on the airplane I flew at US Air, it was 737, 200, 300, you would actually set the uh, what level of braking that you wanted. Um, very light braking or very heavy braking, depending upon the runway. The runways at Charlotte were very long, so we used minimal braking there. But the airplane would actually touch down um, the nose would drop. You would you could hear the the centerline lights. You could hear the nose wheel hitting the centerline lights. The airplane would bring itself to a stop and disconnect the autopilot, bring itself to a stop on the runway. The most challenging part was taxing to the gate. After that landing was the easy part because the automation took care of that. Right. So um, what what makes getting to the gate so hard? Because you can't see. I oh. mean, you, a lot of times you, okay, you, you, sure. can, you can only see 20 or 30 feet out the window. So, oh, man. So you're really looking at the taxi. You're coordinating with the uh, – Charlotte's great. They've got ground-based They've got ground -based radar. So they're seeing you. They see where you are. Uh, you know, you got the taxi diagram. But it's, uh, it's a real challenge to – you're basically looking at runway markings or taxiway markings, and you're only seeing 20 or 30, 40 feet in front of you. And the cockpit on this airplane was uh, – 20 or 30 feet up in the air, so your your slant range distance and reduced visibility, you're not seeing very far. Right. So with the implement, implementation of 5G, I don't know if you've been following that or not, but partially the new the five the new 5G spectrum that's rolling out that operates on the same um, frequency that radar altimeters operate with, and when when you're using a Cat three type auto land system like that. You're not using a barometric. When you get to the very bottom to determine if you're going to land or go around, you're using radar altimeters, which is more sensitive than barometric altimeters. And a sure. radar altimeter basically transmits a, a, a beam from the airplane, bounces it off the ground, back to a receiver on the airplane, and it calculates the absolute height of the airplane above the ground. And what's happening now with 5G is it's giving a false return to the radar altimeter, so it's it's not working. The where I fly now, we don't use Cat three auto lands. Number one, because of, of training, it, you have to go every six months for recertification. It's very expensive. Um, our airplane is capable of Cat three auto land. Um, it just becomes a point of, of training. We would have to go back and train on it and be recertified every six months. When you fly for the airlines, you got to go back for and train every six months anyway. So it's not a mm. So it's not a real issue, but most, most corp, there's very, in fact, I don't know if any corporate av aviators that maintain uh, cat three landing uh, certification. So, but the, the technology is amazing. What's there. So what are we going to do with 5g? It's a very good question. S sounds a, scary. Well, what's happening now is a lot of airports. I think what they're going to do is basically they're going to have to turn off the, the, the 5g towers around the footprint of the airports. And we're not talking about a, 
lot of, uh, we're not talking about a lot of space. When you're doing a Cat 3 landing, the, the lighting of the runway system is not even important because uh, you're behind it. You're, as you're landing, you're, you're behind the lights when you see the runway. Mm -hmm. So probably what the fix is going to be, and I, I don't know, this is just my summation, sure. but I'm thinking for the short term, they're probably just going to turn off the 5G towers in, within the parameter of the airport. Um, so right now when the weather's really bad in Charlotte, um, people aren't getting in. And pretty much every major hub, Detroit, uh, Memphis, San Francisco, you know, all of these airports rely on airplanes. Boston, Boston's a big one. Um, these airports are relying on airplanes, airliners being able to get in even when it's really foggy. And when you take that auto land capability away from them, that's a really big tool in their arsenal that you're taking away from them. It's really disrupting the system right now. Mm. So what I'm hearing is there's a lot of technology that's very complicated to operate. And being a pilot's no joke. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's uh, very enjoyable. It's uh, it's, uh, it's it's something I've obviously enjoyed, and it's been a been a great career for me. Uh, but it is something. Uh, recurrent training is uh, you're always training. You're sure. always. Uh, I believe I'm, I'm going to spend the week next week in New York for recurrent training. This is I think going to be about my. 19, 18th or 19th recurrent wow. on this particular airplane, but I learn something new every time. And, and you're certified per always, airplane, or do you have a certain license that allows you to operate a certain class of airplane? So you have what's called a, a type rating. Um, if you fly an airplane that weighs over 12,500 pounds, or if it's a turbojet, then you have to have specific training on that airplane. So my, my pilot certificate has a specific listing of the airplane that I fly right now. So it's called a type rating. And I've got, uh, I'm typed in five different airplanes. And most, most pilots are throughout their different career. They'll, uh, they'll have uh, licenses and different equipment they've flown over the years. Um, as far as category and class, there's uh, airplane, helicopter, balloon, glider, airship. I've probably missed one. A seaplane. Um, but uh, I've, I've got... Uh, airplane helicopter and glider ratings that uh that i fly so what's your favorite place or let me ask this question first what's the scariest place to land that's a good question um i wouldn't say that i've ever been scared um, some there's certain airports Short runways that are or there's weather there, conditions there's I mean, certain there's airports that are more challenging than the mm -hmm. others um one of the funnest, I, I, I'll, I'm going to use the word, I'll use the word challenging rather than scary. Sometimes you just got to work harder. Um, flying for US Air, we used to go into Washington, D.C. at night a lot. And D.C. has got relatively short runways, only 7,000 feet runways. Is this Reagan and, and Dulles? Or that's just, Reagan, yeah. Dull, okay. Dulles is wide open. I mean, Dulles okay. is 10 or 11,000 foot runways. Reagan is right down in the middle of oh, town. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Concorde used to land at Dulles. So, uh, yeah, Dulles has got big wide. I mean, Dulles is not an issue at all. Um, when the weather is great at Reagan and you're landing to the south, they did what was called the river visual. So you would you would be up around in northwestern uh, D.C., Fairfax County, that area, that you would acquire the river. And they tell you to, f to follow the river. Well, that sounds easy, but it's night. You know, you can't see the river at night. You learn to look where the lights aren't, and that's oh, where yeah. the river is. And there's a uh, as you follow the river as you as you get closer to the DC airport you've got some pretty important airspace to your left you're coming in oh, yeah, uh, to the right. National Observatory that's the vice that's the vice president's headquarters and then uh, closely after that you've got the the White House and then you've got the mall the Capitol area so so you obviously want to stay out of that so you're you're kind of coming down the river and then you're rolling to the right to land on uh, runway 18 to the south and it's a very and it's a very short runway uh, for for a heavy airliner coming in so again 7000 feet is not a lot of runway for a you know, for a, a maxed out, you know, 737. And so, so that was, uh, that was always fun. That was challenging. Um, one of the funnest approaches I used to love to fly was, uh, uh, the expressway visual and a runway three one at LaGuardia and then you're packed in New York airspace. So, uh, we would come up over, uh, they've been long since been destroyed, but there's two big water tanks. They were called the Maspeth tanks. So you would fly over the tanks, hang a right, fly up the Long Island Expressway. Uh, you'd 
hug around Shea Stadium, keep the airplane in a real tight roll, then come in and land on right three one in LaGuardia. That was that was a ton of fun. I enjoyed that. I remember we flew into the Virgin Islands and it was like ocean, 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 ocean runway. A lot of them are like that. Yep, a lot of them are like that. Uh, just last year, I landed in uh, Canawan and uh, very short runway. And that runway starts at the starts at one end of the island, ends at the other one, and uh, a lot of the and in pretty rough runways as well. So there, a lot of them are built on uh, built on volcanic soil and not. It, not not very even and uh made for a pretty interesting ride okay that's just, mm, gives you a lot to think about when you're flying so you've flown it sounds like mostly corporate type um essentially private jet for corporate corporations yes. or whatever yes. and that's been pretty much your whole your whole deal right um who are some of the interesting people you've got to fly corporately uh, over the years, that's a great question. Um, over the years, uh, when I flew for uh, flew for the airlines, uh, I met uh, Senator Fred Thompson once. That was a, a pretty uh, interesting. That was a long time ago. Uh, I forget the uh, a flight attendant came to the cockpit and uh, he said, "We have Fred Thompson in first class." And I turned around and looked, and I said, Senator Thompson's on board. And the guy looked at me, he goes, he's a senator too? And I was like, oh my, that's when he was on, I think Law and Order was the big thing. Oh, wow, well. okay. So, uh, uh, so I uh, went back and said hello to him. Uh, once we, he, uh, he asked who I was, how long I'd been flying, uh, I had a great conversation. He said, well, if you got some time in Washington, I'd love to come up and meet you. And so uh, once we hit the gate, he came up, sat in the cockpit. We sp- spent a lot of time up there. Um I wasn't actually at the airlines very long. I was I started in 1999, and then right after the attacks of 9/11, I left uh, the airlines. I was, was going to lose my job anyway. The following December, I just took an early out uh, to manage an airplane for a uh, company in Winston-Salem. It was a it was a uh, airplane that was owned by a private individual. He just leased it back to a charter company, so I managed and flew his airplane uh, while flying his airplane. I um, had an interesting trip. This was right after 9-11 and before the operations in Iraq began after the events of 9-11. I flew to Martinsburg, Virginia, picked up um, Senator, uh, uh, the old senator from West Virginia, which is, uh, is it Harry, uh, Harry Bird, mm-hmm. I believe, and uh, flew him up to Massachusetts, I believe, along the return flight. The visibility, the weather was so horrible we couldn't take off, so we had to delay our departure until the visibility came up. So the rest of his entourage went inside. Well, he was in very fragile health at the time. He was uh, just not able to walk really well, so he elected to stay on the airplane. It was really cold out, so so uh, the airplane, we, we had ground power on the airplane, so it was nice and cozy and warm. So, uh, so I'm, you know, just Senator Bird and I just sitting in the airplane, so it was, uh, we spoke about 9-11, spoke about the, the attacks, and, uh, you know, if you watched uh, TV and followed politics at the time, he was, wasn't a fan at all of the current president, but it was amazing how pleasantly he spoke of President Bush, what a, what a good job he was doing, and how uh, there was a lot of evidence that it did, in fact, indicate that um, Saddam Hussein was, uh, had perpetrated, perpetrated a lot of the attacks, and so he thought the right thing to do was for us to... Uh, go go into Baghdad and do what we did mm-hmm. and uh one-on-one that was just amazing and then later on to see what involved afterwards uh, especially when we didn't find the WMDs you know what you what I saw personally and then what I saw take place on the Senate floor were two obviously two different things oh. um, but I flew uh, Coach K on several occasions so okay. I would go to um, I actually got to know him quite well, flew to uh, Raleigh, and I would pick him up. This is in the early 2000s and take him on several uh, scouting missions with his team. Okay. We spent a lot of time going up in the Northeast. Uh, one particular day we came uh, while we were en route from Winston-Salem to Raleigh. The air conditioning system failed on the airplane, and this was on a mid-August afternoon. It was awful. And uh so we landed and taxied up, and he was always waiting for us in a, in a private uh, area in the terminal there at the Raleigh uh, airport. And uh, so I went in and sat down with him. I said, well, Coach K, we got a problem. I said, the air conditioning is out. It is miserable on the airplane. He said, well, is it safe to fly? I said, oh, it's safe. I said, once we get to altitude, it'll, uh, it'll be quite comfortable. But 
you know, for the first 10 or 15 minutes, it's going to feel awful. And he says, well, if you're, if you think we're safe, let's go. And I said, well, let's load up. So, uh, we taxied out and I mean, my, I, I can barely see, I'm, I'm, I'm sweating out my eyeballs. And so I just, before we uh, took off, I turned to check on the passengers. He didn't loosen his tie. didn't take off his coat. I, I don't think the man has a sweat gland. But, all business. Uh, all business. Really class act. Total class act. He was a good guy. That's pretty cool. Sounds like you've probably got to meet a lot of interesting and uh, notable people. It's been it's been fun. I if I think back really hard, I could probably think for think of a few more. But uh, it's uh, uh, yeah, there there've been a few. So it sounds like you spent a lot of hours on the airplane. What's some of the crazier or more memorable events that's taken place on the airplane? I have been very lucky throughout the years to have worked for operators who really maintain their equipment well. Uh, if anything is broke, we fix it. And so I've never had any really major component failures on the airplane that really stand out to me. There have been a few occasions where I've just been in the right place at the right time to see something really cool. Um, in the uh, mid-90s, I was working for a, a company in Greensboro, and the uh, the CEO of the company was really big into sailboats. So I, when we weren't, when I wasn't supporting his company, I was basically chasing chasing his sailboat all over the world. Uh, we spent our summers in Nantucket in the wintertime. It would start in the Bahamas, and by late winter, uh, that sailboat would be down in the Grenadine somewhere. So, um, so I've I've chased that thing all over the place. One particular. Uh, uh, one particular flight, we had left Greensboro and we're going to St. Martin. Um, when you when you're flying to the Bahamas or the Lesser Antilles, pretty much the way you get there from this part of the country, you fly over Carolina Beach, uh, which is Wilmington basically, and then you if you ever go to Carolina Beach, look up. That is a that is a big exit point into oceanic airspace. Um, from there, about 200 miles offshore, there's a point there that everyone navigates to and then you kind of hang a right and that's kind of begins a highway in the sky there so instead of that normal routing they turned us uh, south over florida they gave us uh, jacksonville center gave us a reroute and this was uh well before the internet there's a lot of information that we, we take for granted now but there's a lot of things you know that you just didn't know about then so i asked them what the reroute was for and they said it was before it was for a launch at uh, cape canaveral and it didn't necessarily mean it was a shuttle launch. It could, uh, the Air Force used it uh, often as well. But um, as we were about 40 miles west of the Cape, I was looking right at the pad. And, of course, at the time, I determined it was, in fact, a shuttle launch. And I knew exactly when the launch time was. Um, when they lit the main engines, I was uh, at 41,000 feet, just about probably 30, 40 miles just west of the Cape. And uh, it lit. And I got one look at the orbiter. The when you watch a when you, when you watch a shuttle launch, an old video, you don't get the perception of the speed at, at which that vehicle is moving. From forty-one thousand feet, as it left the tower, it started its roll program, which gets it into the heads-down, nose-low trajectory to for the maximum escape velocity to escape Earth's gravity. It made one turn. I got one look at the orbiter in the turn, and in less than one minute, it was through my altitude of 41,000 feet, and it just kind of healed over on its back, and it left. It was gone. And I was just really awestricken of the speed that that vehicle attained so quickly, you know, to get out of town. That was pretty oh, yeah. cool. That was pretty cool. Um, just a few months ago, I was returning from the West Coast. I was over over the Midwest somewhere, probably close to St. Louis. And uh, the sun had said it was uh, completely dark. And we're, we're probably about an hour, hour and a, well, about an hour and a half out of Charlotte. So I'm just closing out some flight logs, just trying to get as much paperwork finished so I can get out of there and get home when I land. And I, I looked up and I saw this streak of plasma across the sky. And I said, okay, that's just a contrail. And I go back to writing. And then like a half a second later, I thought, wait a minute, you don't see contrails at night. So I looked up and there was just this plasma trail just wicking away going right overhead and i couldn't even speak i, I couldn't get my mouth to, to to formulate the words and i slapped the guy in the right seat that i'm flying with he's a really good friend of mine he looked at me like what i said look and uh so as we we determined that it was spacex crew dragon that okay. was returning and so and that was not just any module but that was the that was a crew that was crew dragon so that was the second flight crew that was returning from the international space station that was i think last uh 
September. So that was kind of cool. That was a cool thing to see. Yeah, that's pretty wild. I mean, do you see, I mean, if you're flying at night or something, do you see comets or stuff like that very often? The coolest, the coolest thing, uh, a couple of months ago, I was coming back from South America, and it was a moonless, cloudless night. And what's amazing, and we were at about 43,000 feet. That's a pretty long stretch from Brazil back to uh, back to South Florida. And uh, at that altitude, the stars are absolutely amazing. I mean, there's no, there's no, uh, I mean, we were way offshore, so there was just no light pollution anywhere. So you can, you, you, you can see satellites, you can see uh, shooting stars, you see meteors, you see, if anything's moving, you see it. It's uh, one of the coolest things I like to do is, uh, you know, once it's, if it's a non-critical phase of flight, I love to kind of dim everything down in the cockpit as dimly as I can and still monitor, monitor everything, but just really take in all of God's glory out there. It's, uh, it's, it's indescribable. Um, one of the coolest things is when you're going to Europe in the wintertime, if you're in one of the northern tracks and oh, if, it's, yeah. if the solar flares are active, uh, you really get a good view of the aurora borealis, and that is that is absolutely breathtaking. Oh, that man, cool I bet so. Wow. So it sounds like you fly, I mean, I mean, it sounds like you fly mostly western to northern hemisphere type stuff, the, uh, South America, North the, America, Europe. The uh, organization that I support now, um, I, I work for, I work for a private indiv- individual in Charlotte, and I, I can't really disclose uh, uh exactly who it is or what we do but uh we we have a business interest really throughout the world okay. um, um west coast east coast united states uh everyone's in new york we're in new york as well uh, but we're in south america uh spend a lot of time in the uh in the bahamas caribbean in that area uh then obviously europe as well um there are, are some companies we've acquired in the far east as well so uh um, Australia is pretty much locked down right now, so nobody's going to Australia. Sure. Um, uh, China, the Far East, it's just nobody's going there right now. But um, how how hard would it be to get uh, snag one of those empty seats? Would love to have you. <laughs> would love to have you. <laughs> so you also own an aviation company yourself, right? And I do. You're, you're a certified instructor. Yes. Is that exactly. right? Exactly. Yep. Yep. I love, love, absolutely love teaching. I uh, love, love the, the classroom aspect and the uh, practical aspect of flying. Unfortunately, in my current job, that's something I had to kind of let go. But um, I had a uh, family member approach me a few years ago that uh, they were really interested in learning to fly. And, um, Believe it or not, it's cheaper to buy an airplane than to rent an airplane. If you're planning on doing a lot of flying, airplanes hold their value really, really well. Uh, you can buy an airplane. You can fly it. I mean, as long as you don't tear it up, fly it, maintain it. You can sell it for what you bought it for. And uh, right now, with the economy, the way things are, um, airplanes are really, really uh, expanding their value. And uh so, uh, but I base it in Elkin. I've got a, a full-time flight instructor that I uh, contract with, and um, I had a full slate of students that were in various different levels of their flight training, mm-hmm. and I was gone days, sometimes weeks at a time, and uh, it wasn't fair to them for me to be gone. They're eager to fly, so so I transferred all my students to sure. uh, different flight instructors. And airplanes staying busy. It's um, what kind of airplane do you have? It's a Cessna 150. Okay, so that's like a single prop. It, yeah, well, yeah, it's a tiny airplane, single, single, single prop, two seats. It's the absolute cheapest airplane you can own. It burns six gallons an hour. Uh, a good friend of mine says the only way you can get hurt in a Cessna 150 is to fall out of it. So it's uh, it's a great airplane though. It's uh, uh, it's a very forgiving airplane to learn to fly in. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just to learn the basics. Probably landed anywhere, huh? On a grass field. Uh, yeah, just about. Yeah, yeah, just about. Um, we use I, I, I've, my insurance policy states and all my students and my instructors they've got to stick to a runway though I never want to hear this thing landing out anyway. <laughs> yeah, I'd say that would be uh, you probably pucker up on that. Indeed, yes, sir. You ever done that? You ever landed in a field? Or? Oh, yeah, many times. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah oh, on your times. in this Cessna or uh, in this in this a Cessna one fifty doesn't have a ton of power. I mean, it's a hundred. It's just a hundred horsepower a Continental engine. So, and then especially you know you throw in some heat. Um, you know, if it's a hot July afternoon, I, no, I wouldn't think about it. But there are some grass. There there are some grass fields. Some decent grass fields around here that we you can land at. Uh, Swan Creek's a great one in uh, Jonesville. 
Um, there's a great airport in South Carolina called Triple Tree. There, you know, a lot of people go in there for fly-ins. It's a cool place. So, uh, really, really cool barbecue place called the Pick and Pig. Really good fly-in uh, restaurant in um, uh, Carthage, North Carolina. Okay. So I've, t- I've t- taken it down there a few times. So do you, do you, when you go on vacation, assuming you take vacation between all of your crazy work schedule, I mean, do you fly somewhere or do you try to keep your feet on the ground while you're not working? Usually it's rare. Um, I have, uh, on trips to Hawaii before I have gone to the North shore and taken a sailplane up and, uh, that's, uh, you know, when you can see a whale from a sailplane, that's a, that's a pretty cool thing. Um, I spend, uh, there's one particular island I go to in the uh, Caribbean, uh, lower Caribbean, actually. Uh, I haven't done it yet, but uh, but I've got friends that have an airplane down there. I want to take the airplanes to go fly around the island and uh, check it out. It's, uh, you know, the, the jet's cool, but you don't see it. It's hard to really appreciate things from 41,000 feet. So, you know, it's nice to get in a, it's nice to get in a small airplane, be a little closer to the ground, and kind of enjoy things. So, with a smaller airplane like that, if you were just wanting to take it out and fly it around, I mean, what kind of restrictions do you have from like FAA? Or I'm assuming the restrictions are a lot different for your single prop plane. Pretty and, much the same. You're operating under the same rules. FAR, oh, really? part, okay. FAR Part 91. They apply to uh, they apply to pretty much. Um, everything so you're flying a lot, a lot with the same rules typically when you show up at a place like that i mean if they don't know you you know you've got to get checked out in the airplane you've got to show them your credentials and uh you have to get on their insurance okay. uh, i mean you're not just going to let anybody hop in them in the sure. machine and fly it so. is there a minimum height that you can't go under um above a the faa has a they've stipulated if it's a densely populated area then you can't get below i think it's a thousand feet uh, sparsely populated 500 feet and never are you allowed to operate an airplane at an altitude that if the engine were to fail it wouldn't cause undue harm or hazard to the people below so um, not saying that I have or haven't ever buzzed a football stadium back in my high school days but you know I probably <laughs> wouldn't it was fun at the time I wouldn't do it again I wouldn't recommend it but uh, just, just for your team, right? Just for the opposing team. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, being it sounds like you're gone quite a bit. I mean, you get to take your family with you occasionally, on occasion, or on occasion uh, they are able to join me, uh, and that's uh, one of the coolest perks of my job. Uh, I work for a really cool guy, and it's uh, it, it's worked out well that my boys uh, and my wife have been able to join me, and uh, that's that's been fun. That's uh-huh. been a lot yeah, of fun. Yeah, I'm sure. So. What, I mean, we hear a lot about the 5G and the technology and stuff. I mean, what's aviation going to look like in 10 or 15 years? New types of airplanes? Are we going supersonic or? That's a great question. I mean, technology is always evolving. Uh, And and supersonic for sure. There's a great new startup company uh, at the uh, Greensboro Airport that's developing uh, supersonic aircraft. So, I was really sad to see the Concorde. Uh, so what happened with the Concorde? The Concorde was economically, the Concorde should have never gotten off the ground anyway. The, the faster you go, the more fuel you're burning to attain that speed. Sure. And, you know, an, an airplane is just a bunch of trade-offs. You know, the, do you want to carry more payload? Do you want to go faster? The faster you go you got to carry more fuel. You're going to burn more fuel. You know, is it economical to go that fast? The, uh, the Concorde in all of its prestige never made a dime for uh, British Airways or Air France. It was just so expensive to operate. It was just so incredibly expensive to operate. So at the time before the crash, I mean, they were already thinking, we just can't continue to make this work. I mean, you can fill the seats, you can do everything you want to, but you know the 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 the, the, fly, the general flying public just can't pay what it would cost to su- sustain that operation, and then the Achilles heel, uh, the day it took off from De Gaulle, and it ran over a uh, shroud. I think it was an engine shroud from a Continental Airlines DC-10. Before it even took off, the uh, the uh, one of the main one of the main gear tires, I forget which one it was, it shredded, and it. Uh, 
basically took out one of the engine. Well, one of the engines disintegrated, took out the other engine. You know, this airplane is fully, fully loaded, fully fueled for a, uh, a westbound flight, and it just couldn't maintain. It couldn't maintain flight, and then after that, the uh, public perception of it just went away, and uh, so they were they were grounded after that. Having said that. Uh, technology and engines is always evolving. They're always figuring out a better, more economical way to eke out more speed. So, absolutely, I think the you know airplanes are always getting faster. Uh, technology is always evolving. Um, a lot of airplanes, uh, the Airbus, uh, their their technology basically almost takes the pilot out of the loop. Uh, even when the autopilot is off and the pilot is manipulating the flight controls, those inputs. Before the, before the flight control services move, the pilot inputs are going through a, uh, a computer, a flight computer, and then, then the, the airplane responds. So you're, it's a very synthetic feel to it. So it has to make sure what you're doing is safe, I guess. It's going to make sure that you're not, you're not exceeding a, a parameter, an envelope parameter of the airplane. It's going to make sure that you're not going to overstress the airplane. And um, it's just going to develop a just a really smooth out outcome uh you know if you wanted to put the airplane in a, in a 15 degree bank you you know they roll it into a 15 degree bank and they just let go of the stick and it'll maintain 15 degrees of bank and if you want it to hold altitude you just don't put any pitch in it it'll sit there and turn until it runs out of gas i mean um a real airplane doesn't fly that way uh the, the airplane i fly is a conventional stick and rudder so you, all of your inputs are are felt i mean you are you are in charge and uh but um you know there's there's uh, there's more of that coming there's uh it's fascinating the technology the the constant evolution the um uh what's happening in the north atlantic with the uh, it's called cpdlc controller pilot data link um and all the coverage there where you're able to fly even in areas without radar you're in constant contact now and uh, so it, it, it's really done a lot to enhance aviation safety. Hmm. Sounds like it. I mean, so we keep hearing to talk about electric airplanes, electric motors. You think that's really going to happen? It seems like battery storage or the amount of batteries you'd have to carry would the weight would be it so would, significant. It's going to be, you know, fossil fuel is still the the best way to get a big payload. To, to get everything to, to move what we've got to move. I mean, I just don't think we're anywhere close to being able to. Sure, you can fly a light glider. I mean, there there have been some airplanes that have flown great distances, but if, if you look at them, they're extremely lightweight. They're not carrying any payload. But for it to work, to if you if you were to look at a huge cargo airplane, it's we're a long ways away from from. Uh, this is all liquid fuel, that. right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, <clears throat> what about like a compressed gas, like a methane, kind of like SpaceX moving towards burning compressed methane? I, or, I mean, you could, I suppose you could super cool it and make it liquid. I, 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 right now they're working towards diesel. They're looking, they're trying, they're trying to make diesel work. They're looking for a lot of different alternatives than, uh, than the traditional jet fuel, which is basically just very clean kerosene that's being burnt right now. But there are a lot of different uh, things that are being looked at. What about vertical takeoff? Vertical takeoff? I mean, yeah. I love flying helicopters. Uh, uh, what, what do you mean in terms of? I mean, it, it, not necessarily even helicopters, but like VTOL. VTOL. Uh, you know, you see it on some of the jets and stuff. It's oh, it's mind blowing. Oh, absolutely, it's great. Yeah, the Osprey. Uh, the Osprey's a really, really cool airplane. Developmentally, uh, they had a lot of problems uh, developing it early on. They had a lot of a lot of mishaps, a lot of crashes. Um, um, ex- expensive, you know, for now. That's a, it's a it's a new technology. It's an evolving technology, um, but it's a it's a really cool concept for sure. So how'd you get into flying helicopters? So uh, I flew for uh, Lowe's Home Improvement for uh, for uh, almost seventeen years, and we operated an S seventy six helicopter, and uh, along with a fleet of Falcons. And uh, it was just a unique uh, situation. There was a flight training opportunity nearby. And uh, the flying that level of helicopter is something I've always wanted to do. Airwolf, Airwolf was one of the coolest shows when I was a kid growing up. So everybody wanted to be a helicopter pilot watching Airwolf. 
And um, so uh, I decided that it's, this is my chance, and this would be a really good opportunity to uh, to uh, not only get into uh, the helicopter aspect of aviation, but to fly a really cool machine. And so uh, it wasn't cheap, so I, f- I financed my own helicopter training. The uh, particular helicopter that I learned to fly in at the time was uh, quite expensive. It's, it was over, it was about 340 bucks an hour to fly this thing, so it's not cheap. But uh, you but, have to pay that to learn. Absolutely, cool. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So uh, they're expensive to maintain. They're 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 expensive to maintain. The co- the components are expensive, um, but vastly rewarding. It's one of the. I mean, I'd been in aviation at that point for uh, almost thirty years, and so it was something really new to me. So it just kind of reinvigorated me, and uh, it's kind of cool to get to. Uh, it was before my dad passed away, so one of the coolest things after I got my private pilot rotocraft rating. Uh, and then I obviously built up to my commercial and then my ATP rotograph rating when I flew the, uh, the low ship, but, uh, it was, I was building my flight time. It was kind of cool to, uh, fly over the family farm. We've got a couple of really nice big areas where it was safe to land. So I'd come in and land and pick dad up in the helicopter and then we'd go, you know, look for cows or, uh, you know, fly around the neighborhood. Uh, so it was, uh, it was a really cool perspective to see our farms and see our see our community from from a helicopter. That was yeah. fun. That was pretty cool. Harder or easier to fly than a fixed wing? Um, definitely harder. Um, um, just completely different. It's uh, everything in a helicopter is very nuanced. Uh, when you're moving the cyclic, moving the collective, anything you move, you're you're changing something somewhere else. You've got to balance out. Um, the trickiest thing is maintaining rotor rpm the uh, helicopter that i learned to fly in didn't have what's called a governor so you were responsible for maintaining the rpm that the main blade was spinning and uh, uh early on i had a uh a pretty experienced helicopter pilot tell me he said fly the disc and he said it's all you're doing so you don't think of it as three or four spinning blades overhead you think of it as a single disc so you fly the disc think about where the winds are coming from and you'll be fine. And, hmm. uh, so that I, once I kind of had that concept wrapped around me, um, um, the aerodynamic forces on a helicopter on the airplane are completely different. So and there's a lot of different obstacles you got to think about. Uh, uh, a tailwind is super, super critical in a helicopter. So you got to really think about when you're landing, um, you're not landing on a runway. You can land in any direction. So you learn the cues to look for, for where the winds are coming from. Um, leaves you know there's a white side of a leaf you know wind is blowing on a tree the leaves will stand up and they they look kind of shiny and white we know the wind is blowing towards that so you gauge that to know where the wind is coming from uh cows always face into the wind flying over cow pasture look at the cows whichever way the cows are always facing they're facing into the wind so uh so that was uh that's pretty interesting funny other little little things you learn (laughs) you do any uh aerial photography i mean it seems like the more and more uh we get the demand for aerial photography keeps increasing i mean you know a lot, i know a lot of that stuff used to be done with fixed wing airplanes sure. and very 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 expensive cameras yes um and now with the the drone technology i mean you think that's uh you think that's the way it's going to go from now Absolutely. on is drone technology Absolutely. is there still a place for a fixed wing aircraft photogrammetry the drones are amazing in the technology. I uh, just purchased a uh, really high-end drone uh, myself uh, last year, and I've kind of gotten into drone aerial, aerial photography. And the camera stabilization, the aperture, the the lens on the camera is amazingly sophisticated. Uh, the drone itself is able to uh, fly with, with really great precision and smoothness, and then the camera itself is 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 on a gimbal it's controlled as well so the quality of the image and video you you get is absolutely amazing so from what it would cost to rent an airplane or a helicopter versus you know a one-time purchase of a drone doesn't cost you anything to operate a drone you plug it in charge the batteries and go fly so for the product you're getting is one of the call where where drones aren't going anywhere right which is actually kind of scary to me as a pilot uh, because we're, we're having a problem in Charlotte right now with uh, unauthorized drone activity. Um, if you're within five miles of an airport, you know, you can't fly at all, or you're not s- supposed to be able to fly at all. But uh, 
just a few months ago, I was approaching the Charlotte airport, and I was at 250 knots, and I saw a drone go whizzing by my window. And, uh, I mean, that would have taken out an engine, uh, could have came through the windscreen. I mean, it wouldn't have been pretty. And uh, they're they're out there. They're everywhere, and there's little we can do about it. Mm. So... But mm. uh, yeah, but they're 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 not going anywhere. They're here to stay. So if you're flying a drone, do it responsibly. Do it responsibly. Yeah, absolutely. There's a really cool app the FAA published uh, before you fly. It'll give you your position, airspace, uh, you know, whatever's going. on. But they're on not even there. supposed I mean, to be over two or three hundred feet, four hundred feet, right? Four hundred feet. So like four hundred feet within line of sight. Yeah. So I mean, really, either somebody's doing something wrong. Or they're in your approach, right? Because that's, that's the right. only time, and if, when you're landing, that's the only time, when you're landing and taking off, that's the only time you're less than 400 feet. That's correct. And yeah. that's got to be pretty close to the airport, right? And Well, that what you're saying is true, but when I saw, uh, this this drone I saw, was uh, I was about 2,000 feet. Oh, and so he was way up there. He was way up there. and Which is illegal in its own right. Number one, you're not supposed to be at 400 feet. And number two, uh, you're not supposed to be out of line of sight you're not supposed to be, operate it beyond what you can see with it with, yeah. with the naked eye and uh so that was that really got my attention mm. that give us all something to think about indeed yes indeed so tell me a little bit about pilot mountain you know we love pilot mountain there's so much history uh north carolina is noted you know for you know our license plate say first in flight and that's great you know i love the fact that you know war of them rover did what they did here you know a lot of in- innovation took place in their little bike shop in ohio let's fast forward years later uh, piedmont airlines came to uh operate it out of winston-salem north carolina you know this little airline was so innovative they innovated a lot of technology that wasn't required by the FAA, and now a lot of what they implemented was developed and and implemented right here, and for and our little pilot mountain played a significant role in that. So, in aviation, there's a phenomenon called CFIT, controlled flight into terrain. That's where pilots become uh, disoriented; they become distracted. You have a perfectly good airplane, you fly it into the ground, fly it into a mountain, which is a horrible thing. One of the most uh, uh, famous incidences in Eastern Airlines, L-1011, in the early 1970s. Uh, they put the landing gear down, and the nose landing gear, they didn't get an indication. It was a burnout light bulb. That's all it was. Uh, the whole entire flight crew got fixated on fixing this light bulb. And the uh, co-pilot, he said, well, let me go downstairs, and there's a little peephole they can look through to, to put eyes on the landing gear to see if the landing gear's down. Well, as he got up, he pushed a control column. It disengaged the autopilot. Everybody else in the cockpit is focused on how do we get this light fixed or is the gear down? Well, the airplane is slowly descending the whole time. The other pilot's downstairs looking at the landing gear. Perfectly good airplane crashed into the Everglades. So that killed most everyone. That was Eastern Airlines, I think, Flight 401. So uh, a few years later, a lot of airlines, uh, it became, within the industry, they, they Something had to come out of that. So one of the things that came out of that was a device called GPWS, Ground Proximity Warning System. And basically it's a combination of the radar altimeter and the system. It looks at the configuration of the airplane. But basically if the airplane saw that it was getting too close to the ground and it wasn't configured for landing, uh, then it knew that it would alert the pilots with a tone and an oral tone. So the way that Piedmont certified that is they took a jet airplane, uh, in this case it was a 737-200, and they flew it at Pilot Mountain. And they flew it 200, they cleared the summit by only 200 feet. And that particular airplane was flown by Ralph Griffin. Uh, he was a farmer, cattle farmer, lived just right in the air at. Most of the people listening to this podcast will probably remember Ralph. He, he passed away about two years ago, really, really good friend of mine. But they flew that airplane at Pilot Mountain. There's 36 points on the compass every 10, 20, 30, 40 degrees. And so they made about 36 passes over Pilot Mountain. They did this in the early 70s. And that led to the certification of a ground proximity warning system. And it's a requirement now, you know, all over the world. So our, our little mountain played a played a role in that. Well, I guess it is called Pilot Mountain. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. And, uh, so, That's pretty crazy to think about our little area tucked away right here in north carolina played a a good role in aviation oh absolutely absolutely and uh my father uh had a uh 
a pretty significant role as well in the, in the 70s as well. Uh, someone called, uh, it was a company called Air Inc. Uh, Communications out of uh, Chicago at the time. They called Piedmont and said, we've got this way to send VHF data over uh, data over VHF signals. Is that something that you guys think you can use? And um, at the time, airlines were uh, tracking their flights. They were tracking their logs basically by the pilots filling in flight times on a, on a log. Well, pilots also got paid by how much time they flew. So, you know, they may be adding a, you know, if you add a few minutes here and there, you know, it could work out for you. So they wanted a more automated way to track these things. So uh, dad built a test cell that uh, operated off of the parking brake, the front door, and the oil pressure sensor. I think it was on the uh, left engine. And uh, when each of these parameters would be hit, when they would, with the, when the door was closed and the parking brake would be, be released, that would send an out time. And when the airplane lifted off the ground, when the nose strut extended, that would be the off time. And when the airplane landed and the nose strut compressed, that would be the on time. And then when they were back at the gate with a parking brake set and then the left engine was shut down and it would interpret that by oil pressure on the left engine, that would be the end time. So dad built this test cell with each of these components. And then there was a conference call that took place. It was the uh, CEO of Piedmont Airlines at the time. His name was uh, uh, Bill Howard. There was a station manager in Los Angeles. And then the company that developed this, it's a company called Air Inc., they were in Chicago, so there was a group call. So Dad activated each of the components of this little test cell, and uh, the CEO of Piedmont was so impressed, he was putting it on all the airplanes, and it paid for itself in the first year. And it, now it's on every, pretty much every airplane worldwide. Um, even what I went into earlier about how separation is maintained in the North Atlantic tracks when we're going to get, that's, that is an evolution of that technology there. Wow. And that was all implemented, uh, you know, here, you know, in North Carolina. So kudos to your dad for coming up with that. That's, that's pretty a, wild. Yeah, it's a cool thing. So uh, I always tell everyone my dad was the father of a cars. So uh, that's <laughs> what this system okay. is called. So yeah, it's Very a really cool, cool thing. Very cool. Well, I appreciate that. It's been. Uh, very informative. <laughs> well, and, I hope so. Uh, it's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed this podcast series. I mean, everyone you've, uh, all the guys you, you've spoken to have been absolutely amazing. And uh, it's an honor to uh, come be a part of this. I, thank you, Corey. Well, yeah, thank you for coming. I'm sure people are going to be very interested in what you got to say. Thanks for listening in. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe to our channel wherever you get your podcast to be notified of new episodes. Remember to be on the lookout for new episodes at the first of every month. If you feel so inclined, please leave us a review and comment on what you like the most. If you know someone who has a good story to tell or suggestions on how to improve, please email us at info at ncretold.com.